Voice Nation. Season's greetings to one and all, and welcome to a particularly festive installment of Device Nation, the voice of Operative Orthopedics. Hope you had a wonderful holiday season. This is Kevin Brown, your virtual elf on a shelf. Would it be a rep on a step? Hope you had a great year. I know I certainly did. I mentioned season's greetings, but technically it should be season's meetings, right? Because, well... I'm going back to Dallas, Dallas, Dallas. I'm going back to Dallas. I was literally at the coffee maker this morning, and my daughter was going, I'm going back to Dallas, Dallas, Dallas. She goes, Dad, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and I can't get it out of my head. And there I was, beaming with pride as a father. Mission accomplished. I think we're going to throw in some retrospective AUKUS episodes here and there for 2022. I can hear new listeners asking now, what the heck is AUKUS? The American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, founded in 1991, over 4,000 members strong. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you have a passion for metal and plastic and all that orbits around that, this is a don't miss meeting. You're going to want to hang around for an amazing conversation today, a two for one. A Device Nation BOGO. We have to make room for the spring merchandise. Sitting Vice President of AUKUS and bright star in the orthosphere, Dr. Brian Springer from Ortho Carolinas, along with Marnie Reed, former star box opener. She's going to get a lot of love here and current executive director of the Foundation for Physician Advancement. It's like two, two two interviews in one. Remember that old search commercial? Well, I brought up the founding of AUKUS, and as we go retrospective, we have to pay our respects to a central figure to the organization we lost December 28th, 2020. We were so privileged to have gotten to talk to the late Dr. Larry Doerr. Dr. Doerr was one of the founders of AUKUS and served as its president in 1995. Let's take our hats off as we take a moment to hear Dr. Doerr's thoughts on how it all came together. Before we get too far away from Chit Ranawite, I believe you and him founded AUKUS, and it is so exciting to see what that organization has grown into. Tell me, what was the idea behind starting it, and how many people were at your first meeting? He and I were concerned because Merrill Ritter and Dick Rothman had been blackballed from the Hip Society. And they were blackballed because they were too entrepreneurial, you know, believe it or not, in today's world. But, you know, back then, uh, around 1990, I mean, uh, there were still a lot of people who didn't like uh, people talking about the business of medicine. But you know, both of them were very good at, at the business of medicine. And uh, and so they, they were blackballed, and then they were they were kind of PO'd about it. And they were going to – they were talking about starting a new organization and uh, – Chit and I didn't think it was a good idea to to start another hip society. So, you know, we we just thought, why not start a society that any you know that is open to anybody that really does joint replacement. They don't have to be doing research like the hip society. Getting hip society, you got to you got to be a, in the in the research. And uh, so that's that's kind of how it came about. And uh, we had a couple of organizational meetings with. Dick Welch, and uh, we got Jim Rand involved because there was nobody better be taking notes and being a secretary than Jim Rand. So we had him involved, and and then we made the decision that the first president should be Phil Nelson, who was president of the Hip Society, because we had to get the Hip Society to go on board. 
And if we made Nelson the first president, why that would uh, that would force the hip society's hand. And so the knee society was not a problem because Chip and I were we kind of founded the knee society too. And uh, so I mean we weren't worried about the knee society, but we were worried about the hip society. But so it all worked out in the very first meeting we had it was sixty five people and. Uh, it was a time when Clinton was being elected and Hillary care was a big uh, subject at the time. So we made ourselves a C6 so we could uh, raise PAC money and uh, work against Hillary care. And we did that. We had our own lobbyists. All 65 people each gave $1,000. So we had $65,000, which was quite a bit in that, that time period. And uh, we, we had our own lobbyists. In Washington. We did more than the academy. In fact, our work on that is what either uh, stimulated or forced the academy to to uh, become a C6 so they could have political influence. They didn't have any at all during that. We were the only real orthopedic group in there at Washington pushing. So that's how it started, and uh, boy, it's grown. I, I, I really am still kind of shocked at how big it's gotten. It, it definitely went beyond what I had envisioned. I didn't think it'd get this big. But it's a wonderful thing because... Uh, so many people who joint, do joint replacement uh, have an organization to belong to, and then they go to the meetings and they learn something. You know, I mean, it's been good. It was good. In fact, it was incredible. And what an incredible honor it was to hear and share the story of this legendary figure in our world. If you want to check out the conversation in its entirety, I will put a link to it in the show notes. What you didn't hear in the full interview was the back and forth we had with his dog that insisted on being part of the interview. Had to edit a lot of that out. He would go on to share with me how much he loved the little guy. It was just a wonderful and touching moment. You know, Dr. Dorr brought up the business of medicine as being the impetus for the organization. And here we are looking back at Dallas 20. 2021, and the topic of the business of medicine was front and center. And we're going to expand on that very topic directly. Well, you know, Dr. Dorr embodies the word legacy, and that's what should have us all excited about the organization Dr. Brian Springer and Marty Reed are involved with creating legacy in the here and now, impacting physicians' lives and their practices in real time. How are they doing it? The Foundation for Physician Advancement. I'm so excited to have them on the show to talk about this incredible work as well as their lives and passion for this industry. It's such an honor to have them both on. A huge device nation. Welcome to Dr. Springer and Miss Marnie Reed. Great to have y'all. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's great to be here. We really appreciate you having us on the show. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I am so excited to have both of you on as you're doing amazing work on a topic I'm hearing more and more about, the business of medicine. Before we land there, would love to discover how both of you found your way here. Uh, ladies, first, my mom always taught me, Miss Reed. So what put you on the path to medicine? Again, huge thank you, Kevin, for having us on. Really enjoyed listening to the podcast you've put out before. And now I'm just writing down that uh, Dr. Springer and I will need to get BOGO coffee cups uh, made <laughs> with the Vice Nation logo. Uh, we'll meet up in August next year. Hopefully it'll be a better scene. Um, so my path to medicine, well, I actually always loved science growing up. I envisioned even having a double major, um, one of which in biology. I am horrible at math. 
Uh, so ended up just doing business. And after starting a career in business to business sales, I got that kind of once in a lifetime shot. There was a surgical device company that was starting up. Um, they were a mid-sized company at the time. Leader got acquired by Medtronic. And the hiring manager at the time happened to believe more in the intangibles of a salesperson more so than experience. And I would say that Jeremy is a huge reason um, to the path that I ended up on that led me to where I am today. And he's still a great friend and mentor. My daughters are both in the ortho world, and it's been a wonderful shift uh, as a dad over the years, seeing more and more women coming into this historically male-dominated field. Uh, I saw a website you were involved with, Stilettos <laughs> on the Glass Ceiling. Forbes had some really nice things to say about it. Uh, tell us a little about it. Yeah, that was exciting. I think one of the funnest things, um, and this is a little ortho humor, hopefully all the viewers um, and not HR will be listening to, um, it was always interesting sharing the name of the blog that I started with my surgeons because sometimes their eyes would light up and they'd <laughs> Google it thinking that it was something else. Right. And then they would start flipping through articles and the excitement got a little bit less. Uh, it wasn't all, but that, that always gave me a chuckle. Right. Um, huge kudos to your daughters. Love hearing about more diversity entering into the spine and the ortho practice world. So high five if you're listening, ladies. Um, actually, kind of like you, I was a box opener at the time. I don't know if um, I would I would say you probably don't get bored. I got a little bit bored because, you know, five and a half years, you have the same two products that you show up to the same, you know, doctors with. And I thought, you know, what do I want to do next? And most people get either an MBA or these days they get an MPH. Um, I'm not a huge fan of tests. Don't like to sit still that long. So I thought, you know what, why don't I just figure out this world of blogging and digital media strategies? And I've always been a writer, wrote a lot of plays that were probably horrific back in the day and some songs and such. Um, but I would say that the best part of being a device rep and having SOTGC at the time was got to interview hundreds like yourself of amazing women and men of different industries and backgrounds. And we quickly formed a global community that believed that the glass ceiling at that time was really a mindset. I mean, if you think back on it, Many women prior to me even entering into the workforce had already shattered the glass ceiling. So why don't we take something that typically has a negative undertone and create a forum of people sharing best practices and supporting each other and realizing that you're standing on your own glass ceiling. You just have to choose what sacrifices you're willing to make to go through it. Well, that whole concept of women helping women wasn't really that far away from what you ended up doing at SCA, was it? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's... The 7% of women in orthopedics has been fantastic. I did do a little stuff on the women's leadership. Can't take hardly uh, any credit for a lot of that. There were some phenomenal leaders that helped with that. Um, but I would say probably SOTGC is really what kicked in my desire to increase uh, people who needed more professional development because it wasn't typical to their training, so to speak. Awesome stuff. Well, Dr. Springer, let's talk about your journey for a moment, going back to Lynchburg College. I love that town. My daughter graduated from college there. Uh, was becoming an orthopedic surgeon already on your to-do list, or did it just evolve for you? It, it was. Thanks, Kevin. And you know, I'm really excited to be on and, and love your podcast. Having listened to some of the prior episodes. Oh, thank you. Um, and and I, I do have to say, 
being in practice 17 years in residency and fellowship, I've never heard the term box opener. <laughs> and I just can't tell you how excited I am to have learned that tonight. That may be the most important thing I take away from this. It's a takeaway. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, no, it's it, it was definitely an evolution. I had certainly kind of an inauspicious start. You know, I went to a, went to a very small uh, undergrad liberal arts college. I really didn't have huge intentions of going into medicine. Nobody in my family's in medicine. I actually, my career goal was to be involved in athletic training and sports medicine. That was what I had by my minor in. I also had a major in biology. And interestingly enough, I was going to Marshall University, which is in West Virginia. Right. Great, uh, great town, Huntington, West Virginia, where I met my wife. So I'm married to a a girl from West Virginia was going there to get my master's in sports medicine. I had just by chance also applied there to medical school. I got waitlisted, and the week before I was supposed to start uh, my grad uh, school for athletic training, I got a call from the med school saying they had a spot open up. Do I want to go? Awesome. And so I completely pivoted and went from grad school to med school. It was uh, one of the best decisions I ever made. You know, from that point on, it was pretty obvious that I was going to do orthopedics just because of the the typical, you know, cliche, if you will, tie-ins to, sure. to you know, to sports and sports medicine and things like that. Um, and then joint replacement for me was just a natural uh, evolution because I love the patient demographic. I love the instant gratification of seeing patients do well immediately. They're so thankful. Uh, they're so grateful and. And to think that, you know, as a team, you can, you know, instantaneously change uh, somebody's life has really been uh, has really been just a tremendous reward. Orthopedic surgery residency at Mayo Joint Fellowship at Harvard, Brigham and Women's. Dr. Chin says hi from over there. That had to be an (laughs) amazing experience. Uh, She's my good buddy. Um, Yes. Amazing experience. Um, I'm so fortunate to have the opportunity to train in those places. They're still very close to my heart. I still practice many of those same principles that I learned at at Mayo and at Harvard. And, you know, it's all, it all comes down to for, for all of us, I'm sure on this call and everybody that listens to mentors and mentorship, you know, that's what really, you know, I, I really feel strongly that, you know, people are placed in our lives to help guide us down this pathway. And that's what, that's really what mentors are for. And like you guys, I've been very fortunate to have some amazing ones throughout my career. Well, tell us about your practice these days. What do you really enjoy doing? Yeah. Hard to believe I've been in practice for, you know, 17 years. Uh, I'm at Ortho Carolina, which is a large kind of private academic group. We have about 140 orthopedic surgeons in our group. I've been very fortunate to be a fellowship director. So I oversee just a tremendous group of talented fellows. I'm so thankful that I don't have to be in that candidate pool nowadays. It's so unbelievable with the men and women that are applying to fellowship uh, this year. And, you know, my practice focuses on the big revision practice. We have a large referral practice for infections for our periprosthetic joint infection center. So it's been very, it's been very diverse and it, you know, it continues to grow. You know, we're venturing into the outpatient surgery world as everybody is. You know, we're trying to understand what the future of healthcare is going to be with value-based care uh, and how that looks for big groups and, you know, alignments and, and things along those lines. So 
lot of exciting stuff happening. We've been doing an AUKUS retrospective here on Device Nation, and what better person to ask about their impressions of the meeting this year than the current vice president? Uh, thoughts? Anything jump out at you this year that was particularly inspirational? Well, I think it was inspirational just to be back in person. You could feel the energy there after having gone a year with, uh, you know, unfortunately in 2020, where we still had the meeting, but obviously the it, it was very different than what we were used to. And to see everybody back and in the room and the excitement that people had not only to see each other, but to listen to scientific presentations and exchange ideas um, was really um, was really incredible to see. And I think that momentum is going to hopefully continue to carry over into into 2022. I, I think. You know, one of the one of the really cool things about this year's meeting, and it was really what what you and Marnie were alluding to in the beginning, was the focus now on on diversity. Um, you know, we had symposiums on on diversity. We had whole scientific sections on on diversity. You know, and just and increasing that presence within you know within AUKUS and within our profession, and just watching that grow. Seven percent is way too small. And, and hopefully AUKUS is going to be a, a huge part, a huge guiding light to seeing that just continue to grow over these next over these next couple of years. And I thought that was that was really pretty inspirational. I was reading all the papers that were presented at the meeting. And one that really jumped out at me was one that you put forth regarding the association between invasive dental procedures and PJI. Mm. What did you discover? <laughs> so this may be one of the most controversial topics still in, in orthopedics. Sure. It's something that definitely as orthopedic surgeons in the United States, we feel very passionate about. And it's, and it's been exceedingly dogmatic, but we've never really been able to answer the question about the association between someone that has a joint replacement and has an invasive dental procedure. Does that increase the risk of developing infection? Um, and there's been controversial guidelines put out by the ADA and AOS, and we've done it almost just kind of reflexively. So I was fortunate enough to get involved in this research study group with some really smart epidemiologists and biostatisticians and dentists and oral surgeons in the UK, where interestingly enough in the UK, you know, they, with, from a registry perspective, they track 98% of patients that have joint replacements go into their national registry in the NHS, but also so does everybody that has a dental procedure. And they've always tracked that. And to make it even more interesting, they have never given people antibiotic prophylaxis for dental work. They never have. So you have this very unique patient population that you can link these two together and see if there really is an association. And the data, which looked at nearly 10,000 patients, really showed that there didn't appear to be an association between having an invasive dental procedure and developing periprosthetic joint infection. So it kind of wow. questions our it questions our dogma that we practice here in the United States as to whether or not this continued requirement for prescription of antibiotics is even necessary. It's putting it out there. It'll be interesting. We're getting a lot of feedback, mostly positive, some negative. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how this all uh, plays out over the ensuing year or so. 
uh, when that paper gets published. Before I get too far away from the Grand Hall, I had to ask you one question, Dr. <laughs> Springer. I've heard your name for so many years associated with an American Joint Replacement Registry Project, and I was just curious, how's that coming along? Well, it's it's made tremendous strides. You know, I'm just fortunate enough to kind of ride on the coattails of some of the visionaries that, that came up with this thought process now probably... 10, 12 years ago, Bill Maloney and Dan Barry and Dave Llewellyn, you know, who really had the vision to say, why don't we have a national joint replacement in the United States? We're one of the only industrialized nations in the world that doesn't keep track of what we do. And we do more than anybody else in the entire world. Don't we owe it to ourselves and our patients to keep track of these? And it's been a long road. Um, it's been a long road. It took us, I think, six years to get to a million patients in the registry and then only two years to get to two million patients in the wow. registry. You know, And we're already capturing over 40% of all the joint replacements that are done in the U.S. So we're not near the capture rates of some of the European registries, but 40% and over two million procedures is pretty powerful data. So it's continuing to evolve and grow. We're really excited about about what it's going to show. We're really excited about, you know, how hospitals and and payers and industry have really gotten behind and supported the efforts to to create a national joint replacement registry. We used to debate CR versus PS, cemented versus cementless at these meetings. But the business of medicine has seemingly pushed metal and plastic issues to the back of the room. And I'd like to ask, why now? You know, it's a it's a great question. And I think this dovetails so nicely into what we're trying to do under Marnie's direction for this, for this foundation and why we're so excited about this. Because it has changed, and it's changed dramatically. And our residents and our fellows and our, and our people in practice are thirsting for this type of knowledge about the business, about the business of medicine, because it's changed so rapidly. And the fact of the matter is we're not educated on it. We're not, we're not by nature business people. We're scientists. You know, I think historically in, in a fee for service world, you could get away with that. You could get away with really not having to understand the business side of things because it was simple. You do something, you get paid for something. It didn't really matter if it worked or not. It didn't really matter if there was a complication or a readmission. You got paid for it. It was transactional in nature. And we're moving away from that for, for the betterment of everything, for the betterment of medicine and for our patients. And as a result of that, we need to educate ourselves on that. And that's why you see this kind of pivot from these courses, um, you know, evolving from talking about, as you mentioned, CR versus PS and talking more about the business of, of medicine and what all what all that involves. The business of medicine's perfect segue, doctor. Let's talk about the foundation for physician advancement. How did this get started? So I probably would give a lot of the credit to how this got started, you know, way, way back to the UC San Diego residents and fellows, um, ortho, gen surge, and neurosurgery, who, when I was first starting out in the industry, going from no medical background, business to business sales, straight into the operating room with an energy device. And they really took me under their wing and they, you know, rapidly increased my medical knowledge and acumen. And in exchange, they'd come to me with thoughts about, you know, interviews they had or, hey, you know, so-and-so is talking to our attending about this project. You know, what do you think about that? And it was shocking how little business 
they get. And and I thought, wow, this is this is something that we need to fulfill. And so when Medtronic acquired the company that I worked for, I waited about a year and then petitioned them to have a residence and fellows program created at Medtronic Advanced Energy. And Dr. Ryan Nunley, who is one of the founding FPA uh, board members, was my main faculty. And we went around the country for about four years educating residents and fellows on healthcare economics. And through that, I met Drs. Sheff, Culp, and Yoon, who are board members as well. We all have this passion not only for educating trainees, but for business and for having certain really, you know, dig in and and take the driver's seat of their career, and especially as they are negotiating contracts for themselves for the first time. And then over the past few years, had amazing opportunities and the trust from people like Dr. Springer and Dr. Ast and, you know, Dr. Bolognese for allowing me to moderate panels on value-based care and seeing the response from extremely tenured physicians. I thought, man, these folks know everything, right? I mean, I'm just sitting up here kind of rerouting questions. Um, and, you know, hearing the questions from the audience and getting the feedback from faculty after these panels, after leaving my previous company, we all ran into each other at a meeting or two and, and we started talking and we said, why not us? Why, why did not do it ourselves? And one of the benefits of having a completely surgeon founded and run uh, nonprofit society is you're not regulated under a lot of the restrictions and rightly so that industry is. So you can offer content that is very, very valuable and needed for trainees and early career surgeons that you quite frankly can't do if, you know, you're run by a sponsoring company. So that's how FPA got started. And here we are now. This foundation has a lot of spokes on the wheel, but let's look at the center of it, uh, the core mission. What is it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as Marty mentioned, one of the you know, one of the great things about this is not only is it a, a nonprofit organization, but it's really built by physicians and surgeons to provide education and experience to other physicians and and surgeons um, on the on the core of the business of medicine, which is really, you know, kind of a an all encompassing term if you really if you really think about it. We know that you know value based care is here to stay. What it what it looks like a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. We may not necessarily be able to predict that, but we think we can prepare a generation of physicians for this changing healthcare environment because we know, and even still today, I mean, I've been in practice 17 years. I certainly got none of this when I was a resident and fellow. Right. And to be honest with you, and it's no, it's no fault to the to the programs nowadays because you know it takes a lot of time to learn surgical training and skills and and the medicine of practicing medicine. And there's not a lot of time built in for the business of practicing medicine. And so, you know, this is a huge void in our, in our knowledge, in our education. And that's really what we think the foundation for physician advancement is going to help to do. It's going to help, you know, fill that void. And ultimately it's going to make us better physicians and help to better care for our patients in a value-based care environment. I've seen some noteworthy names already attached to this project. Who is all on board? I'll tell you, we got a great, we got a great lineup and, you know, Marnie kind of gave the background about how this, how this evolved and what her relationships have been. And, you know, a huge credit goes to her because her ability to manage relationships with 
physicians and surgeons, which isn't necessarily always easy to do, as you guys know, sure. um, <laughs> is is uh, is challenging. And she does it exceedingly well. And she's been able to find a core group of physicians and surgeons who are, you know, dedicated teachers, dedicated educators, but also understand why this why this topic of the business of medicine is so important and uh, and want to be careful because when people think about business they think about money and it's not and it's not about money this is all incorporating this is about building successful practices and how understanding that aspect of business and healthcare is so important you know so names that'll sound very familiar for you you know Mike Ast at HSS right Mike Bolognese at Duke uh, Antonio Chen, who you mentioned, who's at Brigham and Women's in Harvard, um, you know, Brian Culp, who's uh, who's in Princeton, um, Cynthia Emery, who's at Wake Forest, Michael Meneghini, who's at University of Indiana, Ryan Nunley, who's at Washington University, uh, Neil Sheff, who's at Penn uh, and uh, Richard Yoon, uh, who's in um, who's in New Jersey, uh, New Jersey Medical Center. So a really, I think, kind of an all-star, all-star cast in this area and, and really, really happy to be associated with, with people like this. You mentioned that it's not about money and the things that you guys are opening up, the navigating contracts, billing and coding practices, office politics, technology, social media, networking, oral boards, and investments. A lot of good ground to cover there. Tell us about any formalized learning opportunities to transfer that knowledge. Well, in 2022, we really wanted to start small. I will say, minus Dr. Asked, this is the first time that we're building a nonprofit from the ground up. So we wanted to keep it small, keep it very centralized to where the majority of the faculty live. So we have two regional courses coming up in 2022. One is in February in North Carolina, and the second one is September in Philadelphia. And we really wanted to make sure that we launched some great courses. They're open to PGY-5 through second year of practice, all orthopedic subspecialties. I know that some people may look at this roster and say, oh, it's just for hip and knee surgeons. No, this is for anyone in orthopedics. And as we grow, we envision doing things like adding weekend long courses, uh, doing some online app-based learning opportunities, and even virtual mentoring and discussion boards as we continue to find more and more excitement and we develop the concept. I looked at my calendar. The meeting is on a Saturday. Nobody has to cancel clinic to check it out. Uh, how much does it cost? So that was one of the main things that everyone, you know, stacked hands and was adamant about is we are providing, as Dr. Springer talked about, what's currently unmet educational needs right now. And it's not about how to just make money. It's about how to establish a practice that you can keep the lights on, right? You can't serve patients if you can't pay the bills. So it's it's no charge to any physician that comes. We've had amazing sponsors. I really want to say thank you to all of the various different support we've gotten, the excitement, um, people, you know, jumping in, leaning in. For any physician that's, you know, PGY5 through second year in practice, if you're in North Carolina or willing to make the drive, please reach out to us. Same thing with Philadelphia. 
Uh, you can train in. We're purposely hosting it near the 32nd Street station. So it's an easy train and then walk over to the hotel. What do you think at the end of the day when you talk about making that drive? As we open up, you know, where's the why, right? Why should they make the trip? What do you believe they're going to walk away with? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think that, you know, they'll they'll make the trip. They get the, the two Fs that get residents and, and fellows to attend meetings is free and there's food. But well... <laughs> Well beyond that, you know, we've we've done similar things like this in in smaller groups and smaller discussions in in various entities. And, you know, one of the great things about this, like is is Marty and I and some of the other faculty have sat down and and structured this. It's not going to be your traditional didactics. No one's going to be up giving just a slide presentation. This is going to be really trying to take a deep dive into the experience of the faculty and it's going to be interactive and it's it's just going to take a deeper dive into things than what you would get from someone just standing up there and giving a seven minute you know lecture with 10 slides because our goal is to listen to what the attendees have to say and then answer those things so it's going to be it's going to be a very dynamic type of uh very dynamic type of agenda and uh, I think they're going to walk away with a better understanding and a deeper understanding of all of these topics in how you can improve your practice with practical points that will allow you to go back and implement these things day one for a lot of the things that we're going to talk about for the, the, you know, the senior residents and the fellows in practice. I think it's, even though it's a day, I think in a day with the density and the amount of material that we're going to be able to cover, I think they're going to walk out of there with some confidence as they're looking towards jobs or jobs that they already have that they're going to be able to go back to. And then kind of bigger picture, understanding what's going on in our healthcare system and our healthcare environment, you know, moving forward. It's just going to allow them the opportunity to, to be involved more in their practices and with their patients so that they can do a better job holistically of, of taking care of them. So I'm, I'm really excited about what the opportunities are. And then it's going to allow us to take feedback from them and determine what do we need to do to make the next course better and the next course better and the next course better after that. I would also like to interject as someone who has sat in the audience for hundreds and hundreds of sessions and panels over the last 12 plus years. Um, one of the things that Dr. Springer doesn't mention because he's extraordinarily humble is for a lot of the attendees, you know, these are the names that they read papers on and they debate uh, in their journal clubs. And a lot of people will interview with a lot of the names on these rosters, their presence at the podium. I think one of the biggest things that I've seen and the feedback I've gotten from attendees at courses I've run with some of the faculty here is the candidness and um, may I be allowed in the ortho room to say even vulnerability that faculty of this notoriety and this experience level have and share with the audience. It's not, you know, here's how you do a knee and here's how you revise it and here's what to do, you know, post-op for infection prevention, et cetera. But it's, 
here are the mistakes that myself and my peers have made, and here's how we're currently correcting it, and here are the continuous you know, modifications that we make. And being able to sit there with some of the biggest names in you know, your subspecialty or in the specialty and have them just be very you know, open with the things that they're working on doing actively, and they're trying to open up to the audience you know, to have them so that they can you know, accelerate their speed and trajectory upwards is phenomenal. And you don't get that from a lot of faculty, but you do with every single one of these. For the reps listening that are excited about this free opportunity for their surgeons and for the surgeons listening that are thinking, you know, I'd like to make the trip to Greensboro, North Carolina for this meeting. Uh, how do they learn more? Ah, yes. Please visit our website. We made it a mouthful, but super easy to remember. It's www dot building a successful practice dot org. If you accidentally type in dot com, don't worry, it'll route you over to the org. I will include that in the show notes. Uh, I love the three pillars on your website, learn, prepare, thrive. And I, I was recalling the three pillars of AUKUS being educate, advocate and research. This is just really a deep and practical dive on that educate pillar, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, as I mentioned before, this is this is the void in the education that most of us don't have. So it's it's expanding that pillar. It's filling that pillar, if you will, with an area that hasn't been filled before in a very, as you mentioned, practical way. But it's interesting if you think about those three pillars, you know, both the learn, prepare, the thrive and the educate, advocate, research. If you think about them, they all kind of tie into each other. You know, I look at even my experience, the more I've been educated in this area and the more I learn about the business of medicine and successful practices in the healthcare environment, the more I've been able to be involved in advocacy and be able to go to, you know, to D.C. as an AUKUS member and talk with, you know, congressional leaders about changes in healthcare and access to care for patients and inequities in medicine and access to, you know, joint replacements. Um, so education has, you know, fueled our ability to advocate. And through education, we've also been able to take deeper dives and do the research we need to understand what those voids are and answer questions about how we practice medicine to be able to move it forward. So they're all we talk about them as separate pillows, but they're all really intertwined with each other. And I think that's what this course will do. I think it'll intertwine all of those elements together for the people that attend. Agreed. Very complimentary efforts going on on both sides. Any parting thoughts on the foundation that y'all would like to leave our listeners with? Well, we're just beginning. Um, as Marnie said, we're trying to start small this year not bite off more than we can chew, build the brand, continue to listen to people and determine what the need is. We're overwhelmed by the sponsorship and the support that we've gotten from industry. You know, our, our concern was here we are putting on a course that's, as you mentioned, not going to talk about a saw or a cutting block or a particular type of polyethylene to an extent and thinking, well, gosh, why does industry want to be a part of that. But they do because they see it as a need. They see it as being this more holistic approach and how they all how they all tie together. So we've been so overwhelmed with the with the industry support to allow us to put these 
you know, put these courses on. Uh, we hope to continue to do more in the future. We're hoping these are the, these two courses we're going to offer this year are easily accessible for people that want to go. And then, and then each year just continue to build on it. I just love the mentorship aspect of your organization and was hoping you both could just take a moment to mentor my rep audience. Marnie, you've won President's Club, Rolex Club. I've always wanted to win that, uh, among, <laughs> uh, among others. And congratulations, by the way. Any advice to them on what they could be doing to be better at their jobs? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I would say in any sales role, especially when uh, working with orthopedics, be your authentic self, be thirsty for knowledge, be kind, uh, educate everyone. I mean, I would say one of my biggest advantages was also my biggest weakness to overcome, which is I walked into the room and most people thought I was the sub ion rotation or the new anesthesia, you know, resident coming in. So sometimes that was great. And sometimes that wasn't so great. Uh, people in general, in general can sniff out ingenuine people and no one likes to feel like they're being talked to as simply a number. Um, so I would say I probably attribute the majority of my success to just being thirsty for knowledge and to literally educating anyone who made the mistake of stopping long enough to hear me talk about my technology at the time and having me ask about what they do and, you know, how that impacts the patient continuum. So um, get new again. Play. Uh, remember how you were you know, first coming in and you put the scrubs on and you walk past that red line and no one yelled at you for doing so. <laughs> and you were in surgery for the first time. And then you went home and you called all your family and your friends. You said, oh, my gosh, I was in surgery today. And they said, I can't believe that's a job. And I'm a little concerned. So get excited about what you do, even if you've had the same product product for years and years. And even if you've called on the same people and the first thing out of their mouth is still same thing. Yeah, but I'm wearing a different shirt. You know, get excited, get hungry but be kind and just educate everyone. Dr. Springer, as we ponder the possibility of a foundation for rep advancement, we should start that. What pillars should they consider to achieve peak rep, sir? Well, I agree with you 100%. It's absolutely something that you guys should that you guys should start. I think that you guys are critical to the success of what happens every day in the OR. And, you know, reps are increasingly coming under scrutiny by hospitals and and oftentimes by companies employers as to what you know what's the value of having a rep in the room can we go quote repless and to me and maybe i'm old school but it's an integral part of the team and you know i can i can only echo what what marnie said about the attitude that the rep has and this is true for residents and fellows and certainly for physicians in practice as nobody likes to know it all you know we all Everybody wants to be part of the team and, and creating that team environment and, and everybody sharing their knowledge with each other and the learning because we all bring a different vantage point of our expertise to the equation. I think that aspect of being a lifelong learner is so important in everything that we do and especially in the business that, that you guys do. I mean, I think what, what would a foundation for rep advancement look like? I mean, how great would it be for you guys to be able to sit in a room with reps from other companies, but not in a competitive environment or a competitive nature and just talk about your field and your profession uh, without having to worry about the Zimmer guy sitting next to the, you know, the Depew guy right. or to be able to have, you know, a group of physicians sit in there that you could, you know, that we could exchange ideas and, and talk back and forth. But that's the type of 
open dialogue that fosters learning and moves things forward. And I think we're, I don't know, maybe we're missing that a little bit, you know, and I'd like to see something like that move forward. This is legacy stuff y'all are doing in the here and now. Really an honor to have two rock stars on Device Nation at the same time. Great work. (laughs) Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. It was our pleasure. What an amazing conversation. Inspiring stuff there from two amazing people, Dr. Brian Springer and Marnie Reed. Thank you for coming on Device Nation to share your passion for physician advancement. We're all about that and we're all about rep advancement here. Why? Because the business of medicine has certainly landed on our shores. Well, let not your heart be troubled as I firmly believe we can look at the business of medicine square in the eye and see the opportunity within the change. It's there. And I so look forward to this journey of discovery walking alongside you the best of the best thank you appreciate you and happy new year